Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. My guest today is my dear friend, Mercedes Rule. As an actor, she has won an Oscar, a Golden Globe, a Tony, and an Obie. She's been nominated for many other awards in film and theater, and has recently starred in the one-woman play about Diana Vreeland called Full Gallop. And it's fitting that she would star in a play by that title, because that is how one usually experiences Mercedes as well, in a full gallop in life. Passionate, funny, generous, and insightful. With an eagerness to explore into the wee hours, if necessary, contemporary issues of our time, as well as history and philosophies of old. We have spent many a beautiful summer evening sitting on her deck overlooking Gardner's Bay and doing just that. Mercedes, welcome. Lovely to be talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, dear, we, you and I went to see the um, Chet Baker film last night, mm. and uh, I was very struck at the fact that he, when he was asked about, you know, why he was continuing to use heroin, even though it was sort of wrecking his life, he said it gave him confidence. And I found it very, you know, interesting that here's this legendary jazz guy at a time uh, when he was sort of the only really uh, celebrated white guy in jazz uh, who, you know, who had to basically wreck his life in order to, you know, have his have his drug in order to play his music. Uh, I just found that very, of course, poignant. And uh, it's not the first time we've heard this story. I mean, you and I have talked a lot uh, over the course of the last couple of years about this notion of self-acceptance. Mm. And uh, I guess that is somehow at the core of, you know, when you see a great artist who is being, you know, affirmed by the world, you know, this is being acclaimed, and yet is somehow so uh, insecure or, or anxious or something. What are your thoughts on, on that, this whole notion of self-acceptance? Well, if you, if you recall in the film about Chet Baker, he goes back and he visits his family. Yeah. <laughs> and there we encounter the maternal aspect and the father. Now, the maternal aspect is... She's a very judgmental woman. She's loving, but she makes a lot of judgments. The father not only is judgmental, he's destructive. Yeah. He's destructive to the, the soul, the creativity, the essence of who Chet Baker is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you come, as Chet Baker did, into adulthood, you are a house divided. It is very hard under under circumstances like this. And in one way or another, I would say most of us come into adulthood with a conflicting feelings about ourselves. There's a part of ourselves that we like and a part of ourselves that's in darkness that we don't like, that we've been told is wrong, that we've been told is irresponsible, that we've been told is foolish, that we've been told is not acceptable on some level. And so it is that part that a creative artist has to break through to 
and use. And you know that I, I've been sort of fascinated with Carl Jung. Yes. And he, he was most preoccupied with wholeness in the human being, which is to say you accept these two opposites in yourself, in your person, in your, in your psyche, the dark and the light. I mean, we have ancient symbols of this in, you know, the yin-yang symbol. But he did feel that acceptance, I think he said something along the lines of acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem mm. for everyone. And it's the acid test of, of one's whole attitude to life. And to, our, to others, I would say, as well, that once... Well, yes, in the individual sense and also in the collective sense. I mean, he once, Jung, millions of years ago, but <laughs> somewhere, somewhere around the 50s or 40s, he addressed a group of clergy in Switzerland and he said something along the lines of, you know, we doctors, we sometimes, we, it must be remembered that we're human. And every once in a while, we hear from a patient something that is very hard to swallow. But he said, unless that patient feels that he is totally accepted by the doctor, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In other words, unless that patient is absolutely certain that he's not being judged, mm-hmm. the doctor can't help him. So the doctor has to walk in to a, a situation, a, a, like an analyst like Jung, and he said we have to sit down and without judgment allow the totality of this person to express itself, even these things that we find very horrible, and contain them for this person without judgment. Mm-hmm. Because he did believe that Condemnation doesn't liberate people. No. It oppresses them. Yeah, absolutely. So you could see how the condemnation, going back to the film, of the father was an oppression to a young Chet Baker. Which he somehow never managed to overcome, actually. Never managed to find any kind of quiet in himself. You know, kind of bought into the father's judgment somehow. Or let's let's yeah. let's assume that might be possible. That that was one of the problems. Yeah, it reminds me of a Krishnamurti quote that I love. When you begin to understand what you are without trying to change it, then what you are undergoes a transformation. And I guess that transformation is that deep self-acceptance and carrying on with, as you say, the light and the dark in each of us and not being freaked out by the dark. But how, I mean, what I find fascinating, say, in your case, that the world has honored you. You know, you've won all the top awards in your field. And yet, I find it, of course, very endearing. But you also still you know, struggle or are challenged by your own, you know, shadow. I find it somehow encouraging in that for the rest of us who might not have won a lot of awards or been acclaimed in our fields or whatever, you know, to know that everybody struggles and there's always a kind of way that we project on the people we think are the most successful, that they would be freed of that. And I think that's one of the urges that people have in wanting to have get on to that kind of stage they might feel okay finally i'll be free of of this self-limiting and insecure feeling yeah well 
You know, interestingly enough, all the awards in the world can't do that. Yeah, yeah. The only way it happens is in a personal confrontation with all those things that exist in the shadow, in the, in the dark side of oneself, all the inher- inherited judgments, all of the embarrassment, all of the foolishness, all of the mistakes, the feelings of guilt, those selfish moments when you didn't realize the point of the moment was to uh, be generous. Mm. These things all come together and, and they, they form a kind of sense of the self that one doesn't want to look at, basically. And so one taps it into the darkness by just not thinking about it, by actually letting it slip into an unconscious place. I mean, these are the things we could know about ourselves if we really wanted to know them. But it's painful. Mm -hmm. It's painful to know things about yourself. And then the next step, which I find most of us don't do but, but could do, is to say yes, yes to the whole thing. Yes, I did that. Yes, I was that. Yes, I made that mistake. And to move, and I think this is, this is a, a thing that a human being can only do with him or herself, to move on through that, not to stop there, yeah. but to move on through that to a place where you say, well, this is something I'm never going to do again. Well, this is something that, you know, and I, I, I assume repair where one can and move on without self-recrimination. In other words, I think the thing that stops us is that sense of self-condemnation that comes up when we reflect on our mistakes, our errors. And this is where we enter a problem too, because they can become, unless we really want to look at them, process through them and move beyond, they can become something that is so intolerable that the only way we can get relief from them is to project them onto other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now, and you see this all the time, a wife projects her own inner dark side onto her husband and there she punishes him for it. Or her children and there she punishes her children or men can do it. Or uh, two friends or a boss and his employee. There can be aspects on both sides of unresolved darkness inside the person, it, whether it's a greed or a sense of guilt about things. And so we project it onto the other person, the boss onto the employee, and there the employee, he can punish now the employee, and he can say because he is the bad, he is the person who is guilty, he is the person who is prone to lying, and there I can punish him. And the whole point has been missed that these things are inside oneself and that's where they have to be resolved. And I have to say, Catherine, in the last couple of years, I have become so fascinated with this. And also, as Jung once said, we are all in this soup, all of us. Mm -hmm. As you're speaking, I was reminded of a Jung quote that I like, um, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakes. That's it. Yeah. But, you know, you're also pointing to, back to the whole notion of carrying on in the face of one's own limitations and fears and failures and all of that, a kind of fortitude that not everyone is blessed with. You know, some, some people, if you knock them down enough, they don't get up anymore. I think, yes, you, this act of reflecting on the self 
and understanding that one has been projecting a lot of oneself on the people one finds distasteful. Mm -hmm. And when you withdraw those projections and take them inside yourself and see what you're really talking about as yourself, it is tremendously humbling. I mean, you know. Yeah. Your 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 cheeks light up in shame. <laughs> <laughs> and is it then freeing? I think if you don't let go of it at that moment, if you can stay with that pain of self-realization, yes, I do think it is freeing. Mm -hmm. And I do think that one aspect of it is that you, and I think it was Jung who said this somewhere, that you discover that you are the one who is most in need of the loving and forgiving arms of yourself. Yes. Yes, indeed. So well, there is that aspect to it that actually is helpful because this thing is difficult to say yes to those things that are in your own shadow. I think it really helps to see that to, to not be so much in ownership of one's conditioning and behavior. I mean, not to be, of course, apathetic about your behavior, but to really not take it so very personally. I think that helps loosen the condemnation to realize in a compassionate way that you're a product of the conditioning, of your time, you know, of parents, culture, siblings, education, etc., and that you're sort of doing your best with all of that, you know, that you're kind of in this morass of conditioning. Uh, so that kind of loosens up the intense personalization of the, what I, I often call the, the me project, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Good phrase. Well, yeah, I mean, not only are we the products of our family, we are the products of the religion that we were yes. born, not born into. We are the products of the country we were born or not born into. The uh, beliefs and the prejudices of everyone, including our teachers and, and ministers and whatever, who were present in the first and early days of our lives. And, and each one of us has a different set of coordinates that we were born into. We didn't get here. We didn't just appear here with no past. And sometimes I think people forget the enormous value of reflecting on the past not, and not just the past of your own parents, but going back and looking at the whole oceanic past that we've all come from. And I, I think, I think once you see that yeah. and once you realize that we are all in this gathered together in this challenge to reflect on ourselves as having a wonderful possibilities and inclinations and gifts mm -hmm. and also at the same time enormous challenges that will impel us until we have real self-knowledge until we really become whole in that sense that we're not punishing or condemning ourselves anymore we're going to we're going to be inflicting those things that are intolerable about ourselves on other people and i guess that's what everybody calls projection mm -hmm. that's where we get in trouble as individuals and as nations yeah. One of the counters I find to negative thinking about oneself or about others is, of course, of course, compassion can arise, but also turning the, the awareness more to gratitude and to even small forms of joy. Do you find mm -hmm. that? Gratitude for what? 
any little thing, like all the basic things, you know, just the, uh, you know, the bird on the railing this, uh, this morning or, you know, a particular way that the stars shine. Like last night I was looking at them. It was in a particularly clear night. They were just glorious, like diamonds up there. You know, just little things, just to sort of break the spell of all that might be missing. The mind, I find, tends to run along tracks of what's not right, right? What can I adjust here to make myself somehow happier (laughs) or somehow more at ease? And so to kind of counter that, to actually have a little mini intervention by reflecting on things that one is grateful for or experiencing, like I said, little pleasurable moments, little moments of joy. Do you use your awareness that way? More and more, more and more. But this whole thing that we're talking about is something that I, once I became deeply aware of it and had the words for it, that is to say through a lot of lectures that I've heard just online, really, of uh, Alan Watson, Carl Jung. Mm. And I thought, oh, this is this is the whole human challenge, isn't it? Saying yes to everything I am without judgment yes. and without recrimination. And it's a practice in a way that you have to keep, you have to keep renewing the commitment to that practice because you can slip back very easily into self-condemnation. And that's, oh, I should be doing this differently. Oh, I must be doing that differently. Oh, I must be doing. But when you even begin to get a foothold in this in this area, you are able to, I think you're able to be right in the moment that is happening of this beautiful world right here. Yes. You know? Yes. And it's almost a sign like you're on your way in the right direction. Certainly. Because, mm. because when we're busily fixing ourselves and criticizing ourselves and it's impossible to turn one's eye on the cherry blossoms and go ah the cherry blossoms do nothing for you in that self-recriminating state of mind Mm. but the more you can even as you say allow yourself a moment that utter bravery of a moment of saying oh what the hell this is beautiful let's just (laughs) let that go for a minute (laughs) It can get habitual. Yes, yes, that's that's a good way to see it. It gets habitual, yeah, yeah. And so for you, like, what are what are some things that just give you really basic joy? Big or small, like both my sons. Yeah, both of your sons, of course. And as I see the younger one move into his own world of concerns and passions, it's uh, beautiful and it's humbling. Um, as I see my older son fall, I think very deeply, although it's not a fall, it's a, it's a penetration into deep love with someone else. It gives me great joy. Um, I am at this moment looking out at Gardner's Bay. It's a little windy out there, little white caps there, beautiful day, hazy, um, sunny sky. That's, that's sheer pleasure and and it, it just brings everything down including my shoulders you know mm-hmm. to a place of peacefulness i find joy in creative work i find joy in acting i, I read a play at the manhattan theater club this week with uh, a number of other actresses and it was so much fun <laughs> that i i came out of it almost in a, a, a feeling like i had made my way 
into a different dimension. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, I've been a mother, a partner, and a, a bit much more deeply into the domestic uh, area of life in the last 15 years of my life. And I came by it late in life. So now to feel that most necessarily the birds are leaving the nest in terms of my younger son particularly, it allows me to focus back on the work that I, I love. And that is creative work. And I'm writing, I'm beginning to write something. And I notice whenever I'm really happy, whenever I'm really cooking, whenever I'm really in the moment, whether it's studying the script to act or writing something, I get on my feet and I'm pacing. Mm. And the thoughts, I'm pacing with the thoughts and I'm moving the thoughts along by moving myself. That is a moment of great joy for me. That's beautiful. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. It just happens that way. (laughs) So I think, though, this meditation of mine that has gone on now, and, and you're one of the first people I ever discussed this with, about this losing self-recrimination, getting beyond that. I, my whole life has been governed by that. I was you know, brought up a, a very good Catholic girl. And I went to church every Sunday, and I went to Catholic parochial schools, a, a Catholic convent high school, and a Catholic women's university. Mm. And by the time I came out, I had really had it with organized religion. <laughs> but organized religion wasn't finished with me. Yet. Uh, right, the condition. laid in certain, certain pathways of thinking that all led to self-recrimination. Yes, and, and guilt over having pleasure. Yeah, bingo. Yeah. And, and guilt over not doing something of obvious charity. In every waking moment of your life, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in other words, not putting yourself, your own needs, your own need for beauty, your own need for peace, your own need for connection before this idea of uh, uh, service. Yes, service, giving and humility before the flawed person born with a original sin on her soul called mm. you. God, you know, what, and, a, what a conditioning, the original sin idea. What a ridiculous, yeah, horrible conditioning. Yeah. You have a chance from your first breath. Yeah. You were born with, I mean, I was little. I was taught you were born with original sin. You say you were born flawed. Mm, I know. And, and, it, and, and, and I mean, really, when you think about it, any of us who's ever looked at a little fresh born baby, I mean, to to. Ha- you know, it's such an irrational thought to think that this baby has been born a sinful creature. <laughs> you know, it's just, well, especially like when a baby first smiles at you and it's sort of like it's the purest thing in the world, you know, that that this little creature learns to smile on its own, you know, <laughs> sort of yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. And, and then, of course, I was also taught that until you were baptized, you would not be accepted into the kingdom of heaven, wherever the hell that is. <laughs> so that if they didn't get you to the church pretty soon and something happened to you during the first two weeks and you died, my God, you would go to this place called limbo. Right. Which sounds about as attractive as a concrete cell. You right. Know? And, and the torment that that is to the parents left behind. Of course, the, the dead baby is unaware of it, but, <laughs> but the but, parents now have to live with this horrendous sorrow it's really amazing how much much misery has been uh propagated in the name of religion yeah yeah and another thing that's very very hard to uproot in one's psyche 
Is some idea of a heaven, a hell, a purgatory? That these are real places of eternal flames? I mean, these are really medieval ideas. Absolutely. But I was born into still in the 50s and 60s, a still literal belief. Sure. Yeah, that's... These existed. Uh, now, I don't claim to want to change anybody's beliefs. I think you can hold on to those beliefs for the profound metaphorical value that they can provide if, if and only if you have found your way to some kind of personal wholeness. And then I, well, I think, I think that little baby that we were talking about, instead of seeing something that just came into life, born with a huge black blotch on its soul called original sin, No, what we see in that little baby is God. We are in the presence of the eternal. We are in the presence of the Godhead. And not only with that baby, but with the flawed person of 45 who stands in front of you. Mm -hmm. You are still seeing a manifestation of the eternal. I had a wonderful, wonderful acting teacher, Tad Danielewski. And... um, at one point, he, he, was, he was watching a girl work on a piece from, I think, the House of Bernarda Alba. And um, he very rarely turned his uh, chair around to face us, the class. He usually sat there with us, watching with us. But once in a while, he'd, he'd think, okay, now the harvest is ripe. I have to say something to them. So he got up and he sat in front of us and he said, what is the oldest definition of theater in the world? I might have told you this. What is the oldest definition of theater in the world? And everybody hemmed and hawed and hemmed and hawed. And somebody finally, so he helped us out a little bit. And he said, it's the actor, the boards, meaning the stage, the actor, the boards, and the what? And the what? And and the what? And the what? The actor, the boards, and the what? Right? (laughs) And we were all like, what, what? The actor, the stage, and the what? And somebody said, the passion. And he said, that's it. The actor, the boards, and the passion. Oldest definition of theater in the world. And he said, so what is passion? So everybody goes, well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's anger, it's greed, it's, it's rage, it's, it's, it's this, it's, it's desire, it's, it's, it's envy, it's, and somebody said, it's love. Yeah. And he said, yes, it is love. And he said, that is the only passion, real passion in the world. That's the only passion. And we're all like, hmm. And he said, everything that we were just naming all those negative aspects of human behavior, all those negative psychological reactions to, to life are merely love on its way to its object, mm-hmm. the object of love meeting with a barrier, meeting with an obstacle. And at that point of impact, it this love just transmogrifies into Resentment, anger, vengeance, I mean, rage, some murderous rage. But he said, without love, there is no energy. There is nothing. There is nothing that animates any of those feelings. It's love. It's love in its its darkest manifestation. And I've always remembered that because he said, that's how you play Richard III. That's how you play the Macbeths. That's how Mm -hmm. you have to play a villain Begin there. Yes. And you'll go wrong. You won't go wrong. Yeah. And I thought, well, wow, pretty good advice. That That is. And, and, and it doesn't it go, I mean, it's the core story in most dramas yeah. <laughs> throughout. Yeah. 
uh, and, and in our own personal dramas as well, isn't it? Yeah. 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 This yeah. word love, and it's very hard to talk about, and sometimes I feel it's cliched for me to talk about it because I, you know, I'm all over the map on what I mean by that word. <laughs> but do you have any thoughts? What are, what are your, what is your unique take? Oh, I don't know. Um, it is, you know, when you're in the presence of it, yes, you know, when you're in the condition of it, you know, because there is a sense of connection that brings one the most extraordinary feeling of joy and a feeling of a connection with something eternal. Mm-hmm. When you love someone, you see them as they really are. When you are loved by a person, that person is seeing you as you really are. Because, and I'm not, well, there's all kinds of love, right? And it manifests differently with different people. But I don't think I can go much further than to say, when you're in the presence of it, you damn well know it. I read somewhere recently that Mike Nichols was asked by a friend of his, an actor, maybe Hank Azaria, shortly before he died. And I asked him, uh, where do you think we go when we die? And uh, Mike Nichols said, I think we wake up in our dreams. Oh, yeah, you told me this. Yeah, I told you that, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and I, I thought, that's, that's, a very, that's a first class answer to that question. I like that answer. <laughs> yeah. Shortly before he died, he went to see Edward Albee's A Delicate Balance and went backstage and uh, visited with the entire cast. Uh, led largely by uh, Glenn Close and John Lithgow. And um, on opening night, um, Mike died that day. And so the entire cast hushed the audience. And Lithgow told us about this two hours that he stayed with the actors backstage and talked and talked about about the craft, about about, um, the business of interpreting a, a, a play of that, um, depth and beauty and magnitude. And they just sat backstage. I don't know, somebody popped out some champagne and they, they stayed there till midnight. I can't oh. talk. And he was about nine days from his death. And when he left, he was there with his wife, Agurf Diane Sawyer. When he left, he said, it's, it's love. Mm. The whole thing is about love. Oh. And, um, and so uh, told us that story from the stage and the audience, we just sat there and it was, it was just like a, one of those transcendent moments. And I remembered thinking, you know, what I learned in freshman year in college, that theater emerged, at least in the Western world, from Greek religious rituals where a priest would talk to a chorus and the chorus would give answers back. And it was all, basically, it began as a religious Ritual, in other words, religio, relating yourself to something transcendent. Interesting. And, um, and I, so I, I just thought that was the most lovely moment, and it gathered the whole audience behind this idea of mites, that that's what it finally all comes down to. Mm. And I think maybe that's what we've been saying. <laughs> yes, I think that is what... What we're sort of always saying in in some, you know, like I I often have the sense that people just making chit-chatty conversation, what they're really saying, it's like, it's like the old 
song, It's a Wonderful World, you know, you see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you, you know, all the, all of the ways that we have our own little social rituals as humans and we make conversation and all of that. Really, there's this underlying urge to connect and, and that is a kind of one of the many expressions of love. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. A very good friend of mine out here, Jack Delashmet, died a few months ago. He was an inspired landscape artist. He was from the South. He had a very deep Southern accent. He loved to eat. He loved to drink. He loved to make merry. He loved people. Mm-hmm. And he was diagnosed with cancer about a year ago, and I, I had no idea he was as close to dying as he was. We had dinner plans uh, at Christmas time, and he had to... Um, Canceled him. He said he just wasn't feeling well, and he he died uh, about three three four days later. And uh, I was working out of town during his the memorial that all of his friends put together for him. So I I didn't go, and I didn't know much about it until I had dinner with a friend last night, and she said he choreographed the whole thing. Wow. I said what? <laughs> she said yeah yeah. And at the end of the memorial. He requested that everybody sing the sunny side of the street. <laughs> Grab your coat and get your hat. Leave your worries on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. And that was Jack. <laughs> and that whole idea, leave, leave, leave the worries there. Oh, that's beautiful. It's kind of you too, Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> and get over there in the sun. It's two steps away. <laughs> This has been In the Deep. To support these podcasts, you can subscribe to this channel on iTunes or post a review there. If you'd like to know more about my work, book a private session, or make a tax-deductible donation for the ongoing production of the podcast, please visit katherineingram.com. Till next time. Thank you.